0: After a much longer hiatus than planned, I'm thrilled to be back with a brand new episode for the first time in almost a year and vow, yet again, to be better about posting these regularly in 2013. I did use this time to completely overhaul my whole blog, write the first draft of a novel, and work on my second 10-year American Board recertification. Be sure to check out iGuy.tv for links to my blog, subreddit, office website, and more. The subreddit, iGuy.tv slash reddit, has links to the latest glaucoma literature, so be sure to check it out. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael Berlin from the Glaucoma Institute of Beverly Hills and UCLA, discussing a passion of his for almost 30 years, eczema laser trabeculostomy. Welcome back to Talking About Glaucoma, the podcast of indeterminate frequency in which I talk with glaucoma colleagues about hot topics in our field. This is episode number 20 for January 2013. I'm Robert Schertzer, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia, Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Centre in Vancouver, BC, and we're talking about glaucoma welcome michael berlin to the show today and we're going to talk about elt eczema laser trabeculostomy Trabeculostomy, and the long
1: and winding road that it's been (laughs) thank you so much for inviting me to participate uh, and uh, for your interest uh, and for sharing the, uh, the story what would you, where would you like me to start? Well, uh, first of all, what's the, I guess, what? what
0: is the procedure? Just the basic <laughs> principle behind it and then how it came to be and
1: where it's being done. Uh, eczema laser trabeculostomy is uh, essentially LASIK for glaucoma. It uh, utilizes an eczema laser to photoablate trabecular meshwork specifically, uh, very precisely, in a non-thermal atraumatic way to uh, enable um, uh, reduction of the outflow obstruction in most open-angle glaucomas to uh, lower the pressure. And it does so in a way that uh, has proven now uh, to be uh, long-lasting. Right. And an excimer
0: laser, but it is a different frequency, a different wavelength from yeah, las- these ex- for cornea, right?
1: Yes. LASIK lasers uh, are a 193 nanometer argon fluoride laser, which uh, is extremely precise and uh, almost totally non-thermal. Uh, however, 193 nanometers uh, does not go through fibers. So, to access our target tissue, trabecular meshwork, we have to uh, provide a means uh, of delivery. So, the delivery system and a fiber optic uh, uh, is transmissible through uh, the next uh, uh, wavelength, uh, uh, ultraviolet wavelength of 308 nanometers, which is xenon chloride. Right. Now, if this is something you developed. It's going back, what, 20 years now?
0: Uh, really almost uh, almost 30 years now.
1: Right. Uh, originally at the time that uh, my colleagues uh, in Europe, uh, Theo Seiler and his group uh, were developing eczema lasers with Lambda Physique for cornea. Uh, I was in the lab with them, and... Um, Uh, decided, uh, in my mind, myopia wasn't uh, a disease that needed this kind of uh, treatment. Obviously, I was wrong, uh, and we applied the same technology to treating glaucoma. So we started on uh, iBank eyes, uh, finding the uh, dose response relationships to 308 nanometers, and then adjusting, uh, calculating uh, thickness of trabecular meshwork, calculating number of pulses required, because identical to LASIK, each pulse removes a specific amount of tissue. So we then uh, calculated the... uh, Specific amount of tissue we needed to remove for an average trabecular meshwork compressed without water because uh, 308 is minimally absorbed in water and absorbed in protein, since trabecular meshwork is partially protein, partially water or fluid. Uh, so we then had to do compression studies, uh, dose response studies, and came up with a parameter which would enable us to perform the procedure in its first generation. So now how does this differ from the trabectome
0: where You go in with a probe and rip out the entire trabecular meshwork and who
1: knows what else. Uh, Our goal and what we've been taught all along is that uh, Schlemm's canal uh, has uh, two different uh, endothelia. The outer wall endothelium is different from the inner wall endothelium. The outer wall endothelium is is more vascular and responds to trauma with uh, healing, as do most vessels. The inner wall endothelium is uh, more forgiving. So if our goal was to remove obstruction at the inner wall endothelium and uh, not compromise the outer wall, we had to find a tool which would enable us to operate within that 20 micron space, uh, and you needed an exquisitely sensitive, precise tool, and that's what eczema lasers allowed us to do. So we could then ablate and remove the outflow obstruction of the inner wall, which Morton Grant showed us to be the most likely uh, locus of this problem, and still have a long-lasting outflow uh, by, by staying away from the outer wall and not causing the healing response. Uh, and to answer your question specifically about uh the difference is uh, um, obviously size. We're making a hole which is approximately 100 microns after um, staging. When you compress tissue and then remove the compression, the size uh, changes a little bit. So you have approximately a 100-micron hole uh, without touching out outer wall of Schlem's Canal versus, as you mentioned, a, a ripping, tearing, uh, large diameter procedure. Right. Now, you don't just do one hole. This is multiple holes. Uh, today's, done, right? uh, per, uh, originally, we, we planned three holes. But uh, with the single first-generation machine, uh, you have a fixed, fixed depth of tissue removed. And we can't see Schlem's Canal, obviously. So you had to uh, guesstimate. If you were right, one hole or two holes is probably adequate. Today's protocol in uh, most clinics is ten openings, uh, in which about five are successful to be targeted to Schlem's Canal. Uh, so uh, it's a very good question. It's something that would have to be studied. How many holes, where should they be put for the ideal uh, procedure? But what's nice about uh, our current uh, paradigm is that uh, it works. And the one that
0: you're using now, is it still the first generation, or do we want to a second or third? The first what
1: generation is, is the one that's being used now. Uh, okay. It's CE mark approved. It's uh, being used in clinics in, uh, in through uh, Europe, most often in uh, Germany, uh, Switzerland. Um, gee, is Switzerland part of EU? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Italy and Greece. So what would it take to get this approved in the US and Canada? Um, in, there is actually a unit in Canada which has been waiting for uh, Health Canada to allow us to use this. Uh, it requires um, a regulatory approval. So, most likely in the US, a 510K, which is a, a short term approval process uh, with predicate uh, devices, and there are um, funding. It simply yeah. requires uh, enough money. But we'd like to further develop a second generation before. Uh, going through the approval process because that would require another approval process, and the second generation uh, adds the bells and whistles of an intelligent handpiece, which enables the surgeon to uh, target trabecular meshwork without the use of a gonial lens or an endoscope, which the first generation requires. And and it
0: will also go through the inner wall of Schlem's canal and stop. Is that?
1: Identical, correct. Uh, the the goal of the second generation is to target trabecular meshwork uh, for the cataract surgeon, not the glaucoma specialist, to enable more people to perform the procedure, to have it uh, uh, automatically start and stop the laser at the targets. So there's uh, foolproof uh, technology, and Great. it's and it's and it is achievable. Great.
0: So, just uh, for those out there with uh, sitting on some money, just send a
1: lot of money so we can get this approved and see where we can go from here. Or advise your families with uh, glaucoma family histories that have uh, uh, funding that might that might enable this technology to uh, to be uh, produced uh, and uh, benefit them. Go for it. Also, uh, if you have patients who are perfect, uh, young. Uh, But people with, for for instance, pigmentary glaucoma, who would benefit by not having trabeculectomies, the only other alternative we can safely provide them, and then have their lifestyle not altered at all, uh, ship them off to Europe. Thank you so much okay. for uh, helping and in your interest. And uh, uh, if any other people have questions, uh, I'm findable at Berlin at UCLA.edu, uh, and there is a uh, an iNet uh, rather an iTube and a YouTube uh, video on E L T that uh, can be searched uh, probably by my name or E L T.
0: Great, and I'll add th- links to that in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Michael yeah, Berlin. Well, that's our show for today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the RSS feed at Whole Lot of Rob. Dot com, iTunes, or by searching within your podcast player on other devices. I've created new shortcuts for both the AAC version with artwork and chapter markers, and the MP3 versions that you can manually enter into your podcast player as http colon slash slash iguy.tv slash podcast RSS aac or iguy.tv slash podcast rss mp3. Even easier, just go to iGuy.tv for a full list of all my shortcut links to my bits and bytes that are all over the net. You can follow me on Twitter by going to iGuy.tv Twitter, or by following Rob Schertzer on your Twitter app, and check out my office website at iGuy.tv office, or westcoastglaucoma.com. Feel free to drop me a line at podcast at for feedback, including topic ideas And if you have subscribed through iTunes, please rate Talking About Glaucoma in the iTunes store. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed. As a reminder for Canadian ophthalmologists, each podcast episode is worth half a credit in the new Section 2 under Podcasts. You can also use any podcast to inspire you to learn more about a topic and earn even more CPD credits because personal learning projects are now worth two credits per hour. This will help make up for the fact that teaching in the clinical setting is no longer recognized for CPD credit. So subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about it, and bug me to complete more episodes.